Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Film Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson and Hollywood. And Anne, the last time we did this podcast, we were, I think, seated on a stage in front of some of our loyal listeners from around the world. I hope I didn't dream that. That really happened, right? Last week at Cannes. It's so interesting. You're intensely in, in, involved with with can and then you're back in your your real life i'm back in la after a little sojourn in new york where i saw you and um and you're back in new york yeah i know we survived it it was it's always so daunting when you get into that that environment environment adventure starting with getting up at the crack of dawn to watch some competition movie to various pockets of time where you try to get some work done to the actual social element and appreciating the fact that you're in the south of France and the weather's great and it's beautiful and all these different kinds of things. It's overwhelming and yet at the end of the day it does feel very satisfying to get to the end and and realize what we've done. And As I said last week on the podcast, while it wasn't necessarily the best can in years, there were enough good movies to write home about and ultimately there's enough that I think is going to get out there that we will, will have the opportunity to continue to talk about as more people get a chance to see that stuff. And that yeah, includes, so you know. Basically, we're going to have a, a ch- they're going to see it on the fall festival circuit. That's when most of these films are going to be shown either in Telluride or Toronto or New York um, or later on at, at AFI Fest. Uh, yeah, and some of them are probably going to be in the awards conversation. At least a strong number of them have distribution, which means that they'll continue to benefit from those canned laurels in their trailers and so forth. Actually, one film that we didn't talk about yet is the one that won the Palme d'Or because it showed pretty late in the festival, and I don't think anybody really was expecting it to be no, the big winner. It was a complete surprise, and I was sort of delighted because what happened was that everybody you and all your core cohorts young and energetic oh boy. stayed up late you know to see the supposed uh you know great movie from from uh, Gaspar Noé love the porn film which disappointed it seemed everyone well it wasn't and, a porn film and it wasn't a good movie either so and then in the morning i uh i did not go to that and i got up early and went to see deep pan which I have to say, I loved, I mean, I think Jacques Ardiard is one of the great directors working today. He has this extraordinary, intuitive, organic, skillful approach to telling stories. I don't know how to explain it any other way, except that he doesn't impose some kind of pre-ordained structure on things. And I actually think that that's one of the reasons why while the jury loved this movie, and there was, it seems to have been a consensus, unanimous feeling of, of love for this and appreciation for it, the critics did not. And the critics all had this issue with the fact that the Tamil fighter who uh, drops his, his soldier gear at the beginning after a horrible battle where he loses everybody in his, in his regiment or whatever, goes, goes, joins a sort of um, um, makeshift uh, fake family in order to get out of, 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 of the country and go to to France with this new wife and this new daughter, all of them strangers to each other. And he eventually picks up his his uh, soldier skills, you know, and in a section at the end of the of the movie, which didn't bother me at all. 
but I don't it know. Seems, seems I mean, to have bothered others. I would say, well, I, I have a lot of respect for Jacques Odiard, and I will say that even though, yes, I was up till 5 a.m. filing on the Gaspar Noe movie and, and made, I think, the wise decision not to go to the 8.30 a.m. where I would have snoozed straight through the whole thing, I did get a ticket to the world premiere, the red carpet thing, so that was one of the few where I was actually there for the big standing ovation, and you could see how well it played. Now, the, the lead actor in this movie is, is a real discovery. It's, it's a really sensitive movie with, I think, also a, a muscular kind of surface to it. It feels very robust, and Odiard's films are like that. There's this tenderness that's at odds in a very explicit way with the more kind of intense, visceral elements of the story from That's a prophet a to Rustin. Really and, and a prophet, a Rustin <laughs> Bone, and this one are, are almost uh, you know uniform in that sense. But I think that this one, the reason why it does work fairly well is because for much of the movie, not a whole lot happens. You're just sort of in this this almost kitchen sink realism of what it's like to to you know migrate into a low income a yeah and, and to, to and to actually build relationships sure. with people that you you really didn't know and and there's something really um it's almost like Mildred Pierce starting her restaurant you know there's this sense of rooting for these people to to come together and knit together and succeed but what what I guess I found frustrating about that finale is that it it is so out of sync with what came before to the point I where I think it, euphoric completely. I was totally expecting because of all the violence around him, all these gangs, all these thugs. I was expecting. I, I felt that he was building up to an explosion. But that's all. But I just found it to be sort of an afterthought and and so overwrought in terms of the way it was done, and yet also beneath the complexities of the film in play, and then the ending was very abrupt. So I'm not saying that it completely undid the movie for me, I just felt that it was sort of uneven in a movie that, while not slight, it was well, very well accomplished, but it wasn't a movie that I got excited about because I expect ODR to at least deliver on the themes in play, and I think because of that, the actors are so good, and the, and the scenario is, is compelling. They were unknown, it, the people that he discovered. It's a true discovery, yeah. Yeah, and by the way, the other, the other, th but I, I will maintain that the movie is unconventionally structured, and it's because it's following some kind of organic storytelling, and that's what it is that the critics are are uncomfortable with. They I have internalized some kind of, you know, supposed uh, three act structure that this movie should be following. I mean, I think also that you're hypersensitive to quality in a film festival environment, and Deep On is a movie that. Maybe somewhere else I would have reacted to differently. I didn't have a negative reaction to it, to be clear. But I would say that it wasn't a transformative sort of cinematic experience. Well, that's the other thing. People know Odiard already. They've already decided he's a great director. And on some level, you know, he didn't get anything last time for Rust and Bone. I almost think, too, that the movie played more powerfully inside France because it's such a serious issue for them. I wish, well, that I, I think, and it speaks to that well, though, as I plugged last week, the, the, the movie that really, I think, addresses the immigration problem in Europe that was at the festival this year is uh, Mediterranean, which was at Critics Week, which is a much more sort of pared down, almost minimalist look at what it's like for these two African migrant workers who go to Italy, which is really the, the one of the bigger 
sort of international stories associated with immigration that people have been talking about. And it's really a movie that feels so topical and, and rich in that sense because of the way that it, it boils things down to the essence of its characters' experiences. And there is a very violent, dramatic showdown at the end of that movie. It has to do with the local racism and, and a sort of workers' revolt. But it's not taxi driver level violence in, in the way that Deepon sort of erupts in that sense. So I think it, it's actually a very telling contrast between those two movies. The can movie that I'm still sort of over the moon about as the big discovery, as you know, is Son of Saul. And that to me I agree with you. Should I mean, have won. For everyone. I mean that's that's a huge, huge introduction to a major talent and and, and it's just something new look forward to. it's something different and sony classics you know, picking that up every single festival I, I i hope so and i hope that it continues to generate conversations not only about depicting the holocaust but about how to portray these traumatic experiences in a way that's actually visually compelling exciting adventurous and that it's not a bad thing in some ways to reduce these very complex situations that we understand through the lens of history to something that's visceral and intense like that it's just a question of does it work as you know within the piece as a whole and it, well this was a particular uh very very carefully thought out aesthetic decision about how to shoot the film in close-up intense close-up so that all the surrounding action was much more transmitted through sound and it did win an award for extraordinary sound um, and through and through blurry sort of side images, it, it because he's doing he's dealing with such horrific things and on such a scale. That's part of what's so horrifying about the movie: the scale of it and the efficiency of it. Um, but but he but he you're you're just watching it from this very blinkered uh, point of view and focused on this one thing about the child who and it's just so marry. it's dealing with these images that are for better or worse iconic in in a sort of sideline fashion there's a soft focus shot where you could see bodies piled up but we know what that is and i think you can just to a certain extent trust the audience to go with this character and understand the context of his dilemma without over explaining and i always get excited about a filmmaker that is you know just really willing to allow the audience to have that kind of investment. Now, there's a movie opening this week called Heaven Knows What from the, the Safdie brothers that deals with junkies in a very similar kind of way in a sense that it's not telling you too much about why they're junkies or what's driving them to be junkies. It just throws a real junkie in there. That's right. Ariel Holmes, who basically wrote a story for the movie based on her own experiences. And it, it just lets you figure it out because look, you understand that these are people who have been sort of isolated by their problems and you're just sort of thrust up in the specific nature of of what they're going through. And so I, I feel like those are the kind of movies that I want to hear more about and talk about rather than things that are more didactic and sort of giving you more context than you necessarily need. No, Son of Saul is what you go to a film festival for. So, it's the discovery of a major new talent. It's his first film. It's probably going to be submitted by Hungary as an Oscar submission. It's you know, obviously Sony Classics is perfect for this, and it will probably win the Oscar. I mean, oh gosh, it's really hard to imagine. You're calling it now, so now it, it's real. Although 
the Jaco Diard movie that's an no, IFC no, no, release? That's, that's the thing. Mm. There's so many. It was a strong. Let's put it another way. If Cannes wasn't a great year for Cannes all around, but it was a great year for the French. I mean, they did very well. They did very well at the awards. They then saw Landon from the, the star of The Measure of a Man, you know, won Best Actor. The, the, uh, Pan is a French film, so it won the Palme d'Or. The the uh, Emmanuel Berco, the for Montrois, you know, got the shared the the best actress with our own Rooney Mara, which is great for Carol. How nice! But the French did very well. <laughs> so that actually opens up a bigger conversation about the Oscar potentials from this year's festival. You did a piece about this earlier that people should look up because it's pretty extensive. But it's not just about the foreign language stuff. There are some bigger contenders there, starting with Carol. Now, could Carol go all the way? It, as a best picture contender, it's really interesting to look at this one because it's, it's a, a little early to know because we sort of have to see how well it's received by critics and audiences. That That's a very big question mark, really, because I could see the writer. I could see the actors. I could see costumes and production design and all of that, you know, score maybe, but, but will Todd Haynes and the picture end up in the race? We need to know, we need more information. Well, what is that information then? That it's a hit, that it plays, that, that a lot of critics love it, that it's on their 10 best lists at the year, at the end of the year. It has to go all that distance. I mean, it's going to be in the fall festivals. It's going to, you know, play in Toronto, and I'm sure, you know, we'll see about Telluride in New York. But I could see it being a big opening night movie uh, from one of those festivals. All of that, but but we have to see. So what else are we looking at then? Um, I think we're looking at possibly um, Weinstein Co. throwing uh, Southpaw in the mix. They ended up showing it at the end of the day at a celebrity yacht screening uh, with no press. That was very uh, odd. Yeah, but we, Harvey is promising to uh, to campaign for Jake Gyllenhaal and you know, the, the Academy voters do, but it's opening in July, you know, so we'll see. It sounds to me more like, like uh, when they work out like that and, it, and transform them. Yeah, I mean, it's strange though. I mean, it's not like that can screening had any kind of buzzy effect on the movie except for showing us that a bunch of famous people watch this movie on a yacht at Cannes and what I've been hearing is that it's not really a Cannes sort of movie which is why it wasn't there it's it just seems like a, it's gonna be you know bloody kind of extreme very much a guy sort of picture with Jake Gyllenhaal all muscle bound and that'll excite some people for obvious reasons but it doesn't seem footage i saw the footage at the at the weinstein uh presentation and what while the, all of what you just said is true um there's a dramatic story attached to it i mean he is a troubled guy he's he's fallen apart he's on he's on you know he's lost custody of his children he's he's down and out and then he pulls himself back up and you know goes back to fighting and and tries to redeem himself. So there is a dramatic narrative there for that performance. What else are we anticipating at this point? It seems like there's a lot of unknown variables that could unfold in the next few months. It's scary to think about it, but the Telluride Film Festival is just around the corner. So we They've better... already sold out their passes, uh -huh. which reminds me that I have to put in for mine. Did you do yours? I did mine. I'm on oh, it. Oh, God, I've got to do that. <laughs> 
Um, they never sell out by this time of year. It's a very popular festival, and I, it's very easy to understand why. It's on a smaller scale. It's over Labor Day. They're very selective. Um, There's so many different reasons why people are excited to go there. They have their sort of longtime attendees, some of whom are only film people one time of the year when they go to that festival, and then all these industry insider types who just like going. Sometimes it's a whole family affair, too, for a lot of people, where right. they all unite over that weekend. Right. And yet, it's still uncertain what might show up there. Well, they've, they've got taste, you know, and they've, they've got... They've got certain standards, uh, so even you know, even something as obvious as Carol, if God forbid Tom Luddy decided he didn't like the movie, he wouldn't invite it. You know. I love talking to Tom Luddy about movies he doesn't like. He doesn't do it publicly so much, but it's he's got strong opinions. Although I will say a lot of a lot of programmers do. It's just that they don't always use that as their main guiding force for how they choose films in, in the lineup. The Telluride, while they try to stay in the conversation about the Oscars, um, they're not as dependent as Cannes and Toronto and New York are on having those few red carpet, black tie, glam, you know, celebrity-oriented, press-oriented moments. They don't have to worry about any of those things. All they have to do is keep their patrons happy. That's true, and so in that sense, they could just show all of Sony Pictures' classic slate. If they wanted to, they could. <laughs> well, you know, there'll be a few of them in there. I mean, Son of Saul is probably a lock at this point. Seems like the that sort of I thing they'd want. Yeah. But there are, there are certainly a lot of things that we don't know about. I would put that on their list. The Hoshashin. Directing prize. Absolutely. I can't wait to see how something like that plays outside of Cannes. Of all things to have U.S. distribution in advance of its premiere, it's kind of ironic that the slow-going, basically plotless Chinese film <laughs> would get it. But it's, it's, a, it's so beautiful and so, so accomplished, and, and I think people are really going to get something out of it even if they're not sort of acclimated to, to Ho Xiaoshan's style. So. And the lobster will, will certainly, I imagine I could see that at Telluride. And you don't think that's too weird for them, huh? No. Um, the, the thing about the lobster is that it's it, as weird as it is, it's, it's well-written, it's consistent. It's, it's, a, it's an imaginary universe with imaginary rules that are exaggerated versions of what we would consider social conventions. You know, if you don't, if you don't have a... If you're not in a couple, you, you know, you're, you're, you're turned into an animal. <laughs> the fact that that premise is, is as crazy as it is but can be described that quickly, almost like a, a punchline, is I think what's so great about it because it's, it's a really compelling hook, but there's more movie there. And well, we all can relate to that. On some level, our society does have certain you know, punitive aspects when, when you don't conform to what is considered the norm. Well, I give props to Jeff Deutschman at the, the now firmly established Alchemy, which used to be Millennium, for picking that one up out of the festival. I think that's a good, that's a good one to, to kind of help establish whatever brand they're, they're yeah, going we'll for. We'll see what they're going to do with uh, <laughs> Gaspar Noe's Love, which is their other acquisition. And you can't win them which, all. Which they picked up before the negative... Uh, pylon occurred. Well, it wasn't like the Gus Van Sam movie. I, mean, I think people were, were respectful of, of love that, that it's trying to do something. It's not. It's not a total failure in a sense. I mean, it's it's just sort of underwhelming, and it's hard to figure out how to package a movie like that 
the 3D isn't there for an obvious reason, even though you might assume that it is. And uh, it's not it's not showy. I mean, it, it's certainly graphic, but it's it's more sort of this very small story about a guy grappling with the fact that his relationship fell apart and it's sort of underwritten in that sense and 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 I, i just i can't get excited about it but maybe just the the lure of 3D porn is enough for marketers to go crazy and figure out a, a nice hook. Go. Yeah, they probably won't go on on uh, in theaters anyway. I think they'll probably chase the VOD side of it where people would want to watch it at home anyway. Anyway, I mean, look, there there are different levels of catastrophes. You have something like a Gaspar Noe at Cannes not getting an ecstatic reaction, no big deal. It's not like the Cameron Crowe movie and the reviews it's beginning this week. You know, there, there are varying degrees of failures out there, and I don't know what that movie's tracking like, but just now, based neither on... Neither <laughs> of us have seen the movie, and I have a story which we're about to post about about why why it, it's not as bad as everybody is, is, is saying. But, but here's the thing. I mean, to, to, to end up with a 40% or a 50% on uh, Rotten Tomatoes is one thing. To end up with 8% or 11%, that's a pile on. And that's like everybody just dumping on Cameron Crowe. And I have a feeling that what he's trying to do, I mean, there's, there's three different things. One could be, that if you're in the world of original comedies and you're, you know, you're not a, he's the brand. Cameron Crowe is the brand. And so almost famous or, or um, uh, as good as it gets. I mean, these, these are, what am I think I'm, I'm using the wrong movie. I'm using a James Brooks movie. Um, the, the Jerry Maguire. These are movies that are iconic romantic comedies. That, that are very hard to pull off. It is really like threading a, a needle to to capture, you know, at a studio level with the studio budget with big stars, you know, the perfect romantic comedy. And and he obviously hasn't achieved it this time. But but the way they pile on him is to, is not to be believed. I would argue that you know forget about the studios and forget about the budgets and go back to doing whatever you want so that you can write something that's true and good and honest and funny and not worry about making it work on a studio. I totally agree. I mean, I think, I don't remember all the details, but there was definitely some weird back and forth between Cameron Crowe and Amy Pascal and those leaked emails. And uh, yeah, and, and and I feel like movies like this, where whereas... Certainly, they have their roots in the studio world. If you go back to the screwball comedies of the 30s and 40s, and, and Cameron Crowe, when he started making these sort of things with, with Say Anything, all the way up through Almost Famous, there there was more of a place for these smaller, more measured stories about human relationships that came from very personal places. And if you had the right kind of combination of star power and kind of a catchy story, it worked, but you don't really see movies like that taking off on the studio scale anymore. If you compare it to the Bujalski movie opening this week, Andrew Bujalski's results, that kind of is uh, something that would have been a studio rom-com a couple years ago. This very small love triangle plot with Kobe Smulders and, and Guy Pearce and, and Kevin Corrigan. It's really funny. It's, it's very nuanced. And, it's a uh, micro-budget compared to something like the 
the the Cameron Crowe. But it doesn't it doesn't look like it because it's got some recognizable faces. It's got a familiar genre, and unlike Bujasi's other movies, it's not shot on some some grainy format that throws you off and looks cheap. It looks like a, a polished movie, and yet it was a, it was a much smaller production. It's being released by Magnolia day and date, and that does seem like the ideal arena for this kind of storytelling. Now, I mean, Crow, if if the talent's still there, and I don't even know how you quantify something like that, he would be benefited by working on that scale, and I wonder I what it's like. More. I think that that's the solution for most of these studio directors who go awry, you know, because it's so hard to twist yourself into a pretzel and deliver this. this. I, I don't even know if it's even possible. I mean, Nancy Myers is still doing it, to her credit, James Brooks has pretty much dropped out of it at this point. It's very hard to do. It's also probably there's there's an ego thing, some kind of hubris associated with this sort of process. I mean, how do you step back to a smaller arena after establishing That's yourself right. in a That's bigger the, one? Until You don't do it until you're forced to do it, which is basically what's going to happen now. You know, he's going to have a, a really tough time. But then again, the other thing is, how do the studios get caught green lighting something that, you know, they've read the script? I mean, it, it's sort of like Tomorrowland. I'm, I'm, I'm still scratching my head. I mean, you, you, there is a role for the smart studio uh, to say, you know, we're spending a lot of money on this. You know, sometimes they make it worse. Sometimes they make it bland. Sometimes they whitewash everything. And, and it's a disaster. But but even so, why go forward with something if it's so obvious that it's not going to be commercial? I don't get it. It's, I'm glad you mentioned Tomorrowland because that was actually my, my long-planned catharsis post-can was to go upstate and watch Tomorrowland at a drive-in movie theater, which I did do. But it wasn't the catharsis I was looking for because what I was hoping for was this like pure escapism. And, and I found this really treacly boring Disney movie that that just felt like it was just completely undercooked. Like it just, something was lost in translation. I don't know what happened Brad along Bird's the way. a talented yeah. guy. I mean, I liked his Mission Impossible, even though that was live action. Of course, I love his animated stuff. Um, so I'm 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 gonna have to catch up with both of these just just out of curiosity. And and to be a completist, I think it is worth tracking how a filmmaker like Brad Bird has gone from being you know the, the kind of star of Pixar to making these not particularly well received big studio live action Mission films. Mission Impossible was very well received. I would have to argue that's I've, the Doha one. That's it the was one where fine. Cruises up on that tower and there. Jeremy Renner is really funny in it. Um, and, and Simon Pegg is really funny in it. I would defend the Mission Impossible. I guess it, this is sort of like the, the commercial version of the conversation we were having with D-Pan, where I'm the devil's advocate saying, I don't have anything against that movie. I'm just sort of underwhelmed by it as a whole. I, I feel like a filmmaker like Brad Bird to go from The Incredibles and Ratatouille to something like that, it just doesn't feel like the right kind of outlet for such a brilliant creative mind. I'm going to agree with you on that, that, that he can do other things. But sometimes what they do, as you know, is they buy themselves some freedom um, by having, you know, by, and, and they buy themselves a very, very extensive and expensive toolkit to play with and learn from. And then they go on and take those skills somewhere else. 
you know, that's how it works. So now we're in sort of the dog days of summer, and it seems like there's not a ton to look forward to. I mean, there's... I saw Love and Mercy, finally, which was at Sundance, so I can talk about it, which is um, a roadside attractions, uh, very much of a smart film, you know, art film. It'll play on that circuit, but it's um, oddly directed by a producer named Bill Polad, who paid for it as well, so he had a complete freedom. He could tinker with it. He could fuss over it. It's obviously been fussed over to a fairly well from the sound design to the music to the acting to, but it has this delicious idiosyncratic kind of uh, detail to it that I liked a lot. And the real revelation besides the fact that Paul Dano is very good as the young Brian Wilson and John Cusack is lovely and touching as the older Brian Wilson is Elizabeth Banks. She's fabulous. It's, it's, there are a couple of things that I really found appealing about it when I saw it last fall on the festival circuit. It's not just for diehard Beach Boys fans, although certainly it works on that level, but also it's it could very have gone... Much focused on pet sounds. Pet sounds. The recording of it, yeah, and the conceptualization of it, but it also it could have gone wrong in all these different ways with the right. time-jumping gimmick where it's like you see young Brian Wilson played by Paul Dano and old Brian Wilson played by John Cusack, and it keeps going back and forth, but it's fine. it works because I think they're both very believable as this damaged character at two different stages of his life. And more importantly, when Paul Dano sings, he's really singing and he sounds like the guy. And it's, it's, I think good. it's the best thing he's done since There Will Be Blood, really. I mean, he put on some weight. Very good in, in youth also, by the way. The uh, Paulo Sorrentino film. Yeah, well, that's another one we haven't really talked about too much out of Cannes this year, but it could, certainly could work its way into the awards race when I Searchlight so. puts I it out later for, this year. I think they're going to like it better on, on the state side uh, of the equation, and I think I actually think Michael Caine could do very well. So we'll keep handicapping that race, and we'll have plenty more to talk about in the coming weeks with the Los Angeles Film Festival right around the corner, various other things showing up. But let's put Can away for now. It's been a pleasure experiencing that one with you, Anne. And, uh, you too. Till next week when we get ever so closer to our 50th episode. I'm so excited. Oh, God, who's counting? Just me. I'm, I'm doing it for both of us. All right. See you next week. <laughs> Bye-bye.